Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to high-performance expert, Pierre Barrier. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today, I am bringing you an episode with Pierre. So Pierre has worked in the Premier League, has worked in the MLS most recently with LA Galaxy, and has also spent a lot of time in uh, US soccer. So this episode focuses on high-intensity interval training for soccer athletes, so combining small-sided games with more focused running. We also dive into a lot of the work behind uh, Martin Bushai and Paul Lawson's uh, high-intensity interval training work, so the hit science work. So how he designs, how Pierre designs sessions, whether it's metabolic uh, focus versus a neuromuscular focus, and how that is cycled throughout the week and throughout the season. We also discuss a couple of other topics that are close to Pierre's heart in sleep and recovery. So both of them very topical issues at the minute but super super important especially in the mls or other competitions around the world that require lots of travel so a really interesting episode with pierre so pierre is in a bit of a transition period having left the la galaxy so really cool to get him on at this period of time where he can be super open with some of the positives over the last 15 20 years of his career and also maybe some of the mistakes that he's made along the way as well so definitely something to create some uh, some thought after this episode and i'm sure it'll be one that you absolutely uh, absolutely love this episode of the pacey performance podcast is sponsored by hawking dynamics the world's first wireless force plate testing system so the hawking dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab so you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world so as i've mentioned the hawking dynamics force plates are wireless which means they're portable and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports so integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable so if you want to get to know a little bit more about hawking dynamics or actually see their plates in action head over to the website uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on twitter at hawkingdynamics this episode of the pacey performance podcast is sponsored by i measure you so used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Pierre Barrier. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this evening, I am delighted to welcome Pierre Barrier. So welcome to the podcast, Pierre. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. I did all right with that surname, didn't I? It always makes me nervous when I'm trying to pronounce other people's surname, but I did all right. You did well. Did all <laughs> Thanks, mate. Um, so, would you mind, in in podcast, true podcast fashion, just give us a bit of a, a background on yourself, what you've done in the past? Obviously, you've done loads of stuff. Um, gives a bit of a whistle stop tour through that, and then uh, more to the present day. Yeah. Uh, listen, I'm going to try to be brief, you know, and not going over the uh, the whole career because I started young. But basically, uh, you know, I started as a um, as a semi-pro player and ex-fist teacher in France. 
uh, always interested in the field of performance. This is back in the uh, early 80s, where, 90s, sorry, when there was not much of it, you know, in Europe and uh, and a little bit more in the US back then, I was thinking. So um, I moved to the US after the World Cup uh, 98 uh, with something in mind, really, really, um, you know, start a career in performance and then, you know, most likely come back to Europe to work in football. Uh, I ended up uh, at the University of Virginia, um, and I'm going to fast forward. So basically, from there, uh, moving to U.S. soccer, where I spent a good decade with U.S. soccer. You know, went to uh, covering like three World Cups, a few Olympics, some uh, U20 World Cups. Um, moved to the MLS after that uh, with Red Bull. Uh, went back to U.S. soccer um, as a, you know, so back then I pretty much was the pioneer of fitness coaching in the U.S., especially when it came to soccer because there was, there was nothing. I set up the, uh, the coaching school and the fitness coaching license for U.S. soccer in the meantime. Uh, decided to leave the U.S. after all this time because I thought I'd seen everything. Went to uh, the UAE to be a performance director for the, the Football Association. And after that, this is where I went to the, uh, to the club setting. Uh, went to uh, Sheffield Wednesday, went to, uh, was associated with Bob Bradley at Stabek, at Le Havre in France, at Swansea City. Um, and then decided to uh, to come back to the MLS. I was in August of seventeen. I became the director of performance for the uh, for the Galaxy. Uh, but unfortunately, this ended recently. So right now, uh, I'm looking for the next challenge. You know, I'm uh, I'm looking for the next uh, the next opportunity, and most likely as a director of high performance role, and most likely working for football, even even if I'm uh, always open. In the meantime, a few things that I've done, I'm, I'm also an instructor for FIFA, so I'm going to federation around the world. I'm going to Singapore at the end of this month, running a, running a coaching school. So yeah, so you know, basically I'm somewhat of a pioneer that is that's, that has involved over the years, you know, as the discipline were evolving itself. Mm-hmm. What's, the, what's the landscape like in mainland Europe and France at the minute when it comes to sports science in, in football, in soccer? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting question because, um, so for me, I was uh, I coach in Ligue 2 four years ago. Um, and yes, it's, it's a good question because the landscape is different depending on what countries you're in. Um, and the landscape has involved, as you know, in the 15 years, between the 15 years that I left France. So uh, France was probably one of the first school of, uh, of fitness for soccer, physical conditioning in the, in the early 90s. Uh, a lot of the uh, university uh, leaders were actually working with Italian teams back then. But then if you fast forward the 15 years, uh, now the... The school of thought in France is very formatted, and it's formatted by uh, by the federation, and it's formatted by the by the programs that are taking place in Clairefontaine, Clairefontaine being the uh, the national training center. So basically, there's a huge uniformity in what the people uh, and ultimately the clubs are doing when it comes to uh, when it comes to uh, performance. You know, so there is a there is a clear line, there's a clear French schools, and I would say 90% of the clubs are following it. So do they, I'm just, I don't, I'm, I'm trying not to sound um, disrespectful, but is there, is there in the, like the, suppose the bottom half of Ligue 1, is there, is there budget for a staff or would they typically have like one fitness coach or would they have a sports scientist, a, a strength and conditioning coach, assistant, etc.? Uh, the model of the performance department is is just starting to crack the bigger clubs, you know. Uh, but more than anything, yeah. But you're right that if you look at um, 
it doesn't exactly, you know, it wouldn't be exactly re- reflected in the rankings, but I would say, yeah, half of the clubs are, are following the structure of simply having a fitness coach. But as technology grows, that more and more you have, I would think, sports scientists, what I know, sports, sports scientists in, in most of the clubs, but not exactly a performance department as a club structure itself, you know. So it's uh, it's evolving. It's evolving in the in the same direction that the other country uh, are evolving. Um, but it but it's uh, but it's taken a little more time. Yeah, mm-hmm. I understand. So while we're talking about France, this is what this is. Um, th- this point, obviously, you'd mentioned it to me about high intensity interval training. It brought me back to revisit some of your um, French counterparts' work, Martin Bouchet. And going through his hit science work and things like that, so I'd like to touch on um, high intensity interval training if we could. And just to just to start us off, it'd be great to get your philosophy around this method of training, and then we'll dive in about small sided games and session design, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But like I say, to start off, it'd be great to get your philosophy when it comes to high intensity interval training. Yeah, and uh, you know, so basically, my philosophy was was born from a, from an idea I had early on when there was not much, uh, when there was no GPS, for example, and we started with heart rates. And, you know, when the polar came around with the transmitters, that was like already a, a huge step back then. But uh, so my philosophy is that, you know, the, the team's going to be, the team's going to be able to run and to run hard for for a long time consistently hard so um and this is also this was a trademark for us teams you know at least when i was around um so when he when when he applied to uh high intensity interval training uh you know how sometimes they would break it down in a few different categories so me would be i would put a lot of stress on the arabic power I would put a lot of stress in uh and obviously we're talking off season but sometime in season with uh with type of long, you know, like moderate continuous running at 80-90% of, of, uh, of, of the max intensity. Um, not so much the uh, neuromuscular, but, I, but I, again, I've changed my point of view over the last uh, few years on this topic. Um, but basically, my main goal was for them to, uh, to, uh, to achieve a, uh, a high level of aerobic power, you know, and that would translate in like like the threshold training at times, uh, but yeah, it would be more it would be more lo- average medium duration than than pure uh, you know um, uh, repeated speed training or fifteen fifteen and stuff like this. I would be more into the uh, the uh, the ten twenty five at the shortest. And uh, the two to three minutes runs in six different groups, depending on depending on on max aerobic speed, you know, around the field. Mm-hmm. So you would you would use MAS to to individualize. I would. That? I, I one of the thing I would use is MAS. The other thing I would basically do it was like a what is still a cooking recipe where the MAS is one that you would get out of a. You know, I mean, the, the test that everybody uses in France is the Vameval. Uh, but it could be, uh, you could get this as of, you know, I, w- I would use a six minute. I still use a six minute. And then I would try to mix that speed also, you know, to get the right balance between the uh, the cardiovascular and the neuromuscular. Um, I would I would moderate that speed with a, uh, a shuttle speed. You know, so there would be a neuromuscular involvement, involvement and a change of direction. So early on, it was just, uh, like I said, a trial and error. But over the years, I've been pretty good at um, looking at these two tests, uh, finding a reliable speed for each guy in order to dispatch them in the co- corresponding groups. So how would you, what would your focus be throughout the week? So if you were, if you were a Saturday to Saturday for instance, in season, how would you split up that Monday to Friday in terms of high intensity interval training? Depending on the models I was following in the particular club, you know, I mean, as as technology as technology advances, as a as a model would uh, would evolve, and uh, also depending on groups and and uh, and staff, um, I would 
most likely follow a model where they would be uh, it would be the week would be broken down into small 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 spaces on the Tuesday, bigger spaces on the Wednesday, and this would this this would affect the uh, the physical training. Um, you know, to, to go back to your question about the uh, the the running, you know, obviously we we talk running, but if we to go if we talk physical development, we would have to. Uh, to include the rest, and to me, to me, the way the coach, you know, um, the the content of training for coaches, you know, is really what gets the really what gets the team um, um, develop and then physically fit. And the running, to me, aside from the preseason, is really a complement of what the what the training should be. So I don't know if I'm making myself clear, but uh, yes, yeah. Yes, so yes, so yes, basically, yes. you know the. The uh, yeah the the actual training itself is where the uh, the fitness should come from. So that's nothing new. Um, but our role, my role, the role of the department is to is to uh, kind of oversee this and verify that it's taking place. And if it's not, then it's our role to step in and to address it. But as much as possible, I like to address it um, prior and in advance. Okay, so. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm give you a few examples. You know, the um, I was saying that my main goal was to uh, was to make sure that we focus on our big power uh, because I was assuming that the neuromuscular, you know, was taking place through the small sided games, you know, among other things. Uh, but that really depends on coaches and. Uh, the one I've been around, you know, and I would obviously I spend a lot of time with Bob Bradley. Uh, his training would replicate the demands of the games, you know, and the intensity was such on a regular basis, you know, that it would encompass all the uh, the KPI that you can find. So the adjustments were really individual based on uh, individual profiles. I have an example of, of uh, you know, there was a, uh, a player that was really, uh, a sprinter. I was really neuromuscular. He had no issues with shuttle tests. He had no issues with repeated sprints. His issue was to last in games, you know, uh, because his his rest interval were walking. When, as you know, in games the rest interval sometimes should be uh, at the minimum jogging. So that guy would be followed the whole season until he progressed into the in he got better in the uh, in the. Uh, metabolic, you know, category. But other than that, you know, Bob, Bob, uh, uh, Bob's training is such that he addresses all, all, all that need to be addressed, you know, and, and consistently. And, you know, I mean, I've been around Mourinho observing and it's the same thing. You know, you find these elements of intensity um, during the week that, and then, and then the actual rhythm of the practice, and aside with the uh, intensity exercise, or such that he that it duplicates, you know, what you need. And Guardiola is the same thing in a different way when he breaks his down in, in more agility and sprinting. You know, I've been studying the Red Bull philosophy lately, the Red Bull school, where a lot of it is about uh, sprinting. You know, a lot of it is about repeat, repeating sprints, but yet, you know, the average intensity of the of the session is such that. It covers also the other elements. So, you know, the, the good coaches have such a system in place that uh, that a lot of the bases are covered. So when it when, so when it comes to small sided games, I know you mentioned that you'd you'd structure it. I know it'd be dependent on the aims of the and the structure of the the team and the manager. But how would you progress um, small sided games throughout the week and potentially throughout the the season? Uh, well, I don't think I see a difference, to be honest with you, during the season. Okay, uh, but during the week again, there would be a, there would be a, a day, and uh, most likely on a Tuesday, when a high volume day with small signing that would most likely be on a Tuesday. Uh, the next day being a, a bigger field type of session, and then again. Um, the first day would be reducing somewhat, but I wouldn't call it small-sided. And sometimes, you know, you can 
you can do another small study just the day before at a very reduced volume. So basically looking at numbers from that, uh, from that Tuesday, um, there would be, uh, there would be a need or not to address it and, and, and to play some more in terms of, of the format, uh, you know, early in the season, I would say um, following the uh, the preseason progression, it would be a little more intense. So maybe a little a little less numbers, uh, and then and then um, a little less number, a little less touches on a on a on a somewhat average uh, size. And then late in the season, and then you can you can play with all this. But I, there's no real set progression in terms of. Uh, evolution of source any games over the season at least you know in, in my in my philosophy I'm just thinking of potential scenarios that that people may come across who are listening and I came across one and it was actually someone we were talking about before in Darren Burgess when he gave the um a presentation at, at the UKCA conference last year and I was actually watching part of that today and he was talking about coaches that often like to get involved and and give instruct and give information, give lots of information in between drills, which often can break up a session when the actual aim is to keep the intensity high. Is that something that you've come across? And how have, if so, have, is how have you gone about around kind of sorting that out? A hundred percent. A hundred percent I've come across. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, when, when you know, I get my, my uh, my session report are structured so that there is a a volume. I mean, you know, an overall volume at the end and overall intensity. Uh, and then obviously intensity is really dependent on time spent on the field based on the workload that you've that you uh, that you uh, you've done that day. And then yes, if you find a coach, you know, uh, willing to uh, I mean, not willing, but that would spend a lot of time explaining, breaking in between the. Uh, uh, breaking the rhythm in between the drills, then right away you're going to end up with intensity problem. So, uh, if I mean to, to be clear again to to people listening, but I think they, they understand if you have a X workload over an hour and then with with minimal talking and then you take the X the same X workload over an hour and a half with the extra thirty minutes between instructions, then guess what the uh, uh, the physiological effects on the body are going to be are going to be uh, completely different, and and in the second case, really uh, almost uh, non-existent. So basically, what you do, uh, you you make a point to the coach, you show them, uh, you show them the charts of intensity and workload over a day, over a week, over a month. Uh, in this particular case, I have in mind, we uh, we showed a workload over eight months, you know, and how. Slowly but surely, the intensity was dropping during practices, and mostly due to the fact that, uh, you know, the uh, listen, it's hard to say coaches have to coach, you know. Uh, but again, um, when they understand that there's a value in keeping intensity high, then they can go straight to the point. Uh, they can anticipate also the coaching and uh, uh, do it later using the video and stuff, and and. Uh, but they have to understand the value. And, and again, most of them do. So how do you do? It's a trust relation with a coach and, and saying that, hey, we need that intensity. It's crucial for us in order to achieve results, you know. And uh, and, and again, the players the players also on board because the players want to play, you know. The players, you know, hate to be stopped. <laughs> yes. uh, they do. Yes, they do, I know. You know? I know. So, if the if the if the coach doesn't get your message, which again, I mean, they always in my case, they've always get that message. It was no problem, but they will also get with they will also get the same message from the from the from the um, the body language of the players, and and, uh, the, and and eventually, you know, you would you would have the intensity ramp up. But to me, again, you know, just like Darren was saying, I, I don't know, he was saying it this way, but for me, that overall intensity of a session is is number one, uh, the most efficient uh, way uh, to develop the, uh, the, uh, the physical capacity of the team on a daily basis. And number two, guess what? Depending on the content of the session is also the most efficient way of, uh, of reducing injuries. Okay? Because, because you, again, you, you, you impose a stress on, on the body, on the muscle that is that is kind of game-like 
on a regular basis. So you reproduce that that um, stimulus, and then you know by the time the game comes, you're fully ready, as opposed to playing, stopping, playing, stopping for too long, getting cold, redoing. I mean, rewarm up, replay. You know, and then never. When you stop for too long, you know, no matter what the next exercise is, you will never reach the same intensity as if you would have kept going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing, one another example that you mentioned was was foreign coaches who struggle with English. Which again, a, a foreign coach that struggles with English or whichever language and likes to instruct just makes things a three minute instruction turns into a five minute turn into a six minute and all of a sudden the, the session is just going on and on and the intensity is just going through the floor yep well listen it's, it's even it's, it's even more simpler than this you know uh if a coach struggles with the language you know it's uh it's almost like a double whammy because guess what worst case scenario there's a translator so now all of a sudden you know you multiply the instruction time by two uh Best case scenario, if he struggles with the language, then he's going to look for his word, you know, and it's going to take him 30 seconds to, uh, or t- take him a minute, sorry, to uh, to address a, a point that would have taken him 30 seconds, you know, if he would master the language or if he was his language. So, so yes, it's it's uh, it's it's an issue in England, especially since you know the intensity of session over there is like almost like a control. Mm-hmm. So just just explain aerobic power to us again and and firstly what it is and secondly why you think it's so important yeah but pretty simple you know i mean the arabic power can this is my term of describing most like uh, what what other people would talk about you know high intensity and arabic training okay Uh, so this is this is the ability to uh, perform around or right underneath below your your lactate threshold too and to maintain that effort so why is it important to me? Basically, I'm trying to push the limit of uh, to to push the actual volume, the actual speed at which you know the players will feel the need to slow down on the pitch, and hopefully, um, trusting that by putting in place demands such at practice that are demands that are kind of higher than the game demands, hopefully preparing the players for uh, to never be in a position on the field to. Uh, to physically slow down or, you know, to, to stop a run because, you know, the um, his physical capacity is telling him that he cannot do it. Um, for me, I want the, physic, the, the physical to be an afterthought when you step on the field and, and, uh, and be re- no matter what the demands of the game are on that particular day, no matter what the style of playing for the team is, you know, whether it's a team that, that play on the low block and then counter, uh, have a team that I press. I, I want the team to be able to execute and, and uh, again any, any kind of game plan. And again, how do you prepare for this? Well, you prepare for uh, you prepare for uh, tougher intensities, tougher uh, higher workload, and uh, and um, yeah, and then bigger volume than the game actually is. Mm-hmm. What, I know we spoke about individualizing it with with the MAS and, and that kind of thing, but would you individualize it in terms of positionally and what's expected of a a wing back, for example, versus a yeah. centre back? Uh, so short short answer in the off season, no. During okay. the season, yes, uh, and I think it's how, how would here. that happen in practice? Very simple, you know. Um, Obviously, I'm not going to name names of team, but there's a there was a coach that is now in England that was coaching in France, and uh, he's got a very uh, very set method. You know, it's a lot about repetition, it's a lot about um, short burst, and really, it's it's almost mechanical. You know, from you go to that cone, and the other guy goes to that cone. In the meantime, you go to that cone. So, so what it does, he creates a lot of movement, and he really uh, uh, make that movement almost like a like a reflex for the players, but the way they play as well, there's an they play three in the back, and then they have the uh, the wing player who are supposed to defend, you know, uh, inside out and and run all over the field. And that particular guy back in the days in that club, tell me Pierre, I mean, I mean, in the game, I just hit the wall, you know, I'm, I'm just not prepared for that. So that's 
that's what I would address if I was in a club. And then basically I started to work with him as an individual coach. You know, uh, it's, I don't think it's supposed to be like this because there's supposed to be a staff in place saying, hey, that guy at that position, you know, has this type of demands and practicing and addressing his demands, you know, and then in a the game, his performance goes down. And that's, that was the player honest feedback anyway. Uh, so how do you address that? Then you look at I, each particular player would have uh, different thresholds in different KPI based on his position. Um, and over the season, over the week actually, not over the season, I want to have um, each player eating his targets during the week to prepare for the game. So if it's not being if it's not being done, then you can then you, we will top it up most likely on a Thursday. You know, give the uh, give the uh, the weekly workload a chance, and then on a Thursday, based on this uh, individual threshold, which going back to your question, are most likely uh, determined by the position. Uh, we will top it up. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Pierre. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss more around sleep and the practical application of best practice. So how we take or how Pierre takes some of the research in this area and applies it to a practical setting, i.e. his last job at the LA Galaxy. We also discuss recovery because that's obviously a big part of what goes on in the MLS due to the distances traveled, due to the amount of games that are played. So really interesting part two coming up with Pierre. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kangatech. So born out of 10 years of research and development, Kangatech is the world's most advanced injury prevention platform. So most recently, Kangatech has released its KT360 testing and training platform, which consists of a portable and adaptable, easy to use fixed frame dynamometry system that allows accurate and reliable measurement of isolated neuromuscular strength, endurance and control. Advanced software analytics allow sport-specific athlete profiling to understand injury risk and guide prescription of appropriate intervention. Kangatech has developed over 35 isometric and eccentric testing and training protocols spanned across the whole body. With KT360, you can test one muscle group bilaterally, and that can be done in under 30 seconds with real-time biofeedback and immediate automated reporting designed to motivate the athlete and inform staff of outcomes instantaneously. To find out more about Kangatech, email how at kangatech.com, visit the website at kangatech.com, or check them out on Twitter at kanga underscore tech. This episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave, which is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position, and this data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our Windows of Trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport athletes, military and law enforcement agencies. They are also an official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website, omegawave.com, or visit their social media channels. Just moving on, another thing that I'd like to chat about, and it's come up loads and loads in in previous episodes, but I really want to get into the nitty-gritty of how research and best practice is actually implemented in an applied setting in the in the real world in a professional football club and that's sleep loads of talk about how important it is yeah we all know how important it is but how do we get 22 20 year olds potentially to actually practice what we're trying to preach how do how do you how did you go about that how how have you gone about that throughout your career um well, I really got into it lately, you know, uh, early on, you know, there wasn't enough technology, you know, but early on, the one thing that ever changed is that uh, the main tool has always been education, okay? The one thing that has changed over the years is uh, the technology available. 
But I think it's going full circle because at the end of the day, it's all about education. So to illustrate my 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 words, you know. Um, so how do you, how do you do how how do I go about sleep? But first of all, you tell them that it's that it's the uh, the key. You know, we talked about so many um, criteria, so many stuff, so many goals and targets and stuff. When we forget the uh, the most that the most simple one, the most obvious one, is probably the most efficient one. And and we're talking about speed. So I, I tell them that uh, you know the I, we go through it first as a team, then individually over the season. You know, repeated repeated um, conversation. You know, you you. Ex- you tell them that you know when you sleep, you know your your growth hormone is going up. You know you, your muscle growth and muscle repair and all that stuff. Bone building, your fat burning is going is going on through the through the uh, through sleep. This is sociology. This is going to resonate with five, six guys. You know, sometimes ten, some sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, and then you know it decreases. I mean, you go through the science with them, and sometimes it works. You said 22 years old, so you know that sometimes, you know, for with some 22 years old, it doesn't resonate to the point that they would make it um, a priority. Um, so then you put the uh, the control thing in place. You know, I mean, you get the RP in the morning. They've been asked about the hours of sleep. Uh, you try to you try to control everything you can control. Part of the education we say educate them about. We talked about it later, you know, because there are challenges in the US that don't exist as much in the UK because of distances. Uh, but you talk about you know the room being calm and dark and the temperature and then the beds and you know and then staying away from the stimulants, staying away from I mean the diet and, and stuff like this. Uh, but basically, you tell them that. When it comes to recovery as well, you know, we talked about all these technology out there, but there's there's not not many recovery strategies that can achieve more than than sleep can, you know. And uh, and at the end of the day, this is where I think it's education, technology, and education. So now you pass the education, you have the technology, you know, you can you know you can use some 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 watches that would control their weight, you know, you can, uh, their sleep, sorry, you can use fatigue science, you know, that would see how much deep sleep can they get and, and, and how much, uh, and how much repair actually takes place. But then I got another example, you know, I'm giving you all the example from my career. And this was in England, actually, we had this player that is, a, you know, that is a international player for, for a big club in, in a, a big country in Europe, but uh, he just couldn't sleep. You know, he would fall asleep at two, three, and then he would have to wake up at seven or eight to go to training. So he comes to you, he has a problem. Uh, you put all these strategies in place. Um, he follows them to the T, and it doesn't make a difference. So you end up being in a, in a cul-de-sac. You know, there's, a, there's not, not much else you can do. And then he goes to the hospital with that sleep study, and and you go back to square one because he's, he's fully aware of the problem. He's trying to address it. He's getting all the support and the science that he needs. And he hasn't changed it. So that's extreme because, again, you know, if any player with, his, with this guy's willingness and then, you know, uh, uh, would definitely improve the situation. But in this particular case, he didn't improve it. So this is something that he had to live with. So how? So, so what happened with that player? How did that? Did that improve? Or did that improve over time? Or no, did that no, no, no. Because again, and he was the and he was the first guy to really be uh, be sad about it because you know he knew that this wasn't putting him in the in in the best spot you know to be successful in his career in in, in his uh, you know he, he wasn't giving the the best chances but again. There was not much that could be addressed. The only thing that could have been addressed in this case, to be honest with you, uh, would have been to adjust the training time. Uh, and this is something that I, I really have, um, you know, I, I've been exposed to because I've coached in different climate, different countries, 
Uh, you know, I've had, I've had practice at midnight in the UAE uh, during Ramadan for the UAE national team when it was uh, you know, still 40 degrees at midnight. Coach in Spain when, you know, culturally you, you train later. But it was, you know, in this particular case, you're not going to address training time with uh, for, for for one player, you know, and he's not going to do uh, solo sessions uh, on a regular basis. So there's not much you can do, not much you can do, you know. But for me, I've, I've always gone to coaches really trying to stress the importance of, of, of sleep. And then, again, the easiest way to do it then as long as it's explained, is to tell them, hey, we're not going to give you what you need. You know, if we can push training time a little bit or report time, we will, you know, but this is why we're doing it. And and uh, so sometimes it's being done and sometimes it hasn't been done. One, one trend that I've seen over the last few years over here is changing training time as you get close to the game. So training at the same time as the game, for instance, on a Thursday and a Friday. Is that something that you've come across? Is that something that you would encourage or don't see the point in? What's your views on that? Uh, listen, I've, the question would have to be, why would you do this? Yep. You know, uh, I believe in, you know, because I believe in, you know, in uh, the, the chronobiology, you know, I've, I've been big on it. We were talking sleep here. So, so I believe in it. In these particular instances, I don't see how um, uh, training close to training uh, training close to training time. The uh, as you get closer to the to the game during the week is going to give you a competitive advantage. You know, I, I'm kind of neutral. You know, I see the pluses and I see the minuses. Uh, you know, players are creative of habits. Uh, creature of habit, sorry, um, and so are we to some extent. So let's say, let's say the day before you decide to train. You know, first of all, this is only <laughs> this is only feasible in some countries, and I know where you're coming from because you're talking about England when you have middays and mid afternoon training. Doing what doing what you mentioned in in France is impossible because you play at you play at uh, eight at night. Okay, so you're not gonna train. At, you're not gonna train at eight at night, but uh, so so that's why you know I really feel, I wouldn't change it, you know, because I don't see what you would get. I think that the negative will outweigh the positives, you know. I like, on the other hand, to um, when it comes to um, when it comes to uh, change the routine a little bit, you know, I see value in training in stadium the day before. Uh, but this has nothing to do with performance. I fo- I, it's more about players and you know getting their their bearing on on the environment. You know, set pieces and stuff like this. I think it's you know getting getting a feel for the for the field and stuff. I think this this is something every time uh, we could do. Every time I was part of the team that could do it, I think this is something that I ended up helping long term. Um, you know, and then for all the reasons, it's a decision that you have to make. You know, it's a judgment call. You know, is it is it more positive than negative? In this case, um, yeah, getting closer to training time, you know, is going to affect a lot of things. You know, let's say you play at three in England, for example. Okay, now you're going to train at three. That means. Depending on where you play in England, that means the players would would be caught in traffic going back home. You know <laughs> exactly. So, so, yeah. So you know, and this is this is all the thing you have to consider. You know, you uh, you said okay, now we're training at three as opposed to train at ten. All right. So pluses, some players get to sleep in. Perfect. Minuses, maybe some players need to go out. I don't want to think about it because for me, I'm looking at the sleeps. So yes, it would benefit my player that I mentioned to you in England before. But this plan single, minuses. Well, you know what? It's a Wednesday. They're not school in the afternoon. You know that that guy is married, so you know he likes to train in the morning because when he gets home, you know he go to pick up his kids from school. Exactly. Sometimes. Yeah. Again, he, he won't be able to do it. You know, worst case scenario, stops at you know it's practice is done by five. Now it's cut into traffic and he's back home at seven. So is it going to affect his uh, 
he's sleeping pattern. Considering that guy, guess what? Usually when he comes out of training, you know, around two in the afternoon, he takes a nap. So complex, complex, you know, uh, problem. But yeah, it's definitely worth, you know, asking the question. And again, uh, judgment call you make uh, with the coaching staff. So one thing that we don't particularly have to deal with over here in the UK, apart from the top six or seven clubs who are playing Europe, is jet lag. Obviously, you, you guys have to deal with it over there in the States, especially on the on the West Coast. Um, what strategy have you put in place over your career to be able to deal with that while you've been in the States? Um, well, yes, as you said, um, I became like a, almost an expert, you know, in, in jet lag just because just because I spent a, a long time in the US and, uh, and especially because I spent a long time with the national team. You know, so uh, so this is something that I definitely had to uh, to look into. Um, well, in terms of strategy, so number one, why jet lag? You know, we talked about sleep. Is you know, jet lag is a problem. Why? Because it affects the the sleeping patterns. You know, and uh, otherwise, you know, it wouldn't be a big deal. Uh, therefore, the importance against of sleep. Um, so I'm going to give you an example, and and then we go into the strategies. You know. Uh, so you mentioned that it's harder for West Coast team. Yes, it is because it's always harder to adjust. It's always harder to um, to adjust to a longer, uh, shorter circadian rhythm than than a, than a longer. So when you fly from last year, beginning of the season, in March, we flew to New York with a Galaxy. You know, uh, so it was on a Friday. An hour and a half in the plane, an hour and a half in the plane ride, we had a, uh, a woman on board that did a, a P, pulmonary embolism. So, yes, so a life-threatening emergency, and she was sitting right in the middle of our team. So, uh, you know, not going into too many details, she was, you know, we got a pulse back, and thanks to the medical staff. Um, and then so we turn around an hour and a half, we land in Vegas, she gets evacuated, you spend an hour and a half on the ground, uh, then you fly another, another hour and a half to be back where you started and then the remaining three hours. So all of a sudden you land in New York, you know, uh, 10 hours later. Uh, as an ID, you know, it would take you uh, 10 hours to fly from London <laughs> yeah. on, on a Friday to play a game on a Saturday midday. Um, so you get to New York and it's not 7, it's 10. By the time you get to the hotel, it's uh, 12. So... Uh, so, and then you need to have dinner uh, and it's 12 at night and the next day you have practice and it's 20 degrees in, uh, in LA and zero degrees in New York in March. So, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, you get into the situation and that's extreme, but a regular trip to New York would take you six and, uh, and, uh, and three hours. So it would be a, a little bit of a challenge. So now, now you get to the strategies, you're at the hotel. So... When you fly commercial, you know, like the MLS team do, with the exception of the few trips, you know, um, the timing of the meals, it's something that you cannot address. That can only, you know, just like the timing of departure cannot be addressed. You know, this will be done by charter flights and you would have checked the boxes of ideal timing, ideal landing time and ideal timing of the meals and content. So we can do this. Um what you can do, though, is when you arrive at the hotel, you can re- remind the players that have been already educated that um, they need to limit the exposure to uh, to light. You know, I mean, what's what's creating what's creating jet lag is the exposure to uh, light. So obviously, the circadian rhythm, you know, and the exposure to noise. Uh, that's something that I've noticed a lot and that I've studied a lot and also through my FIFA FIFA missions all over the world. So the light, you want to make sure that if you're in a plane, you know, the blinds are up, okay? You're traveling during the day. Unfortunately, what the airlines do, you know, they shut the blind because it's easier for them. People are sleeping and it makes for a less eventful ride. Well, you want to fight this, okay? Because you want your players to be exposed to the daylight when it's daylight. And uh, 
that's one thing. You also want your players to uh, not be exposed to the uh, the white light and the blue lights from the electronic and screen, you know, because it's been proven to, you know, excite you more than than you should. It's been proven to suppress the melatonin that is supposed to help you with the jet lag uh, five times more than any other light, you know, when you're exposed to LED screens. So you tell them, put your iPod, put your electronics on night shift mode. And in some cases, you know, you give them the uh, the orange glasses to suppress the effects of the light because your players, you know, are not going to get tired because they, it's going to be midnight, but for them it's 9 a.m., it's 9 p.m., you know. So what they're going to do, they're going to go to their room and they're going to be on the computer. So it's really compounding problems. Um, so night shift options, orange glasses, timing of meals, timing of departure, um, and then exposure to noise. So, you know, there are different types of rhythm in your brain. You know, the, the gamma rhythm, the, like the alpha rhythm, the beta rhythm, and all these rhythms that are, that are really disturbed or um, deranged when you fly in a plane because of the humming, the constant humming of the engines, you know. So noise-canceling headphones are a must. And, uh, you know, and then, and as much as possible, silence is a must, you know, and that's why it's hard to concentrate, you know, when you're, when it's, when it's noisy around you, but for, for the mental ability of your players, you want these guys to be, to be exposed to, uh, to silence. So, yeah, but again, the only solution to really be efficient is to fly private, you know, which hasn't been the case yet. Mm-hmm. So would fatigue, would you use fatigue signs to be able to schedule all these? Exposure to light and ex- not exposure to light. No, okay. I mean it's much easier. I mean it's much easier than me. I mean this, you know, I'm going to be an example. We're flying for the World Cup, you know, to go to uh, South Africa, and uh, and uh, so we time in in a way that it's the least. Um, uh, what's the word in English? The least uh, or the best way possible for them not to be too affected by the time difference. So we because we're flying private, you know. But again, in a plane, you know, they they shut the blind because it's easier on a long trip. You know, if you sleep the whole time, then it's it's going to be more enjoyable. But what do I do? I go through the aisle and I open the blinds, and it's like all of a sudden, like, it's like pure, like <laughs> super intense uh, lights in these guys' ears, and they you know, they wake up and they come swinging at me, but. It's it's a the, the jet lag is something that can be easily addressed. You know, it's it's not going to be perfect, but it can easily addressed if you if you have the right uh, willpower. You know, and uh, it's 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 all about timing of uh, of. Uh, of your of your of your sleep pattern. So you know, another example is now you you know it's not the right time. Oh, the other thing that you do, you adjust your clock to destination. You know, so when you take off, you know it's not it's not eight, but it's eleven a.m. Okay, so that that would help you also know when it's time to sleep or not. Um, and if you can do this during the plane, then you're going to save a lot of time, a lot of time, a lot of adjustment time at destination. So when you have nine hours between the US and South Africa, for example, then then you try to sleep in the plane on South Africa time. You know, and by the time you arrive, you know you should be uh, better prepared. I was speaking in Japan a year ago. Um, you know, it's complicated because you know it's almost like you, when you fly to I'm flying to Singapore at the end of the month, you take off on a Friday and you land in Singapore on a Sunday. <laughs> it's a plus two. You know, it's a plus two. But again, what you try to do is put your clock on Singapore time when you're in the plane, and don't allow your, uh, yourself to sleep if it's not a regular sleeping night in Singapore. You know, and. Uh, and and this can be done, you know. Um, but again, it's not easy, you know. And then you can use melatonin and stuff. I, I try to stay away from it. In some cases, I've I've, I've used it. But uh, again, if you if you don't expose them to the light, then the melatonin is not going to suffer. Um, if you don't expose them to noise, then you also your production of melatonin is not going to be affected. So at the end of the day, I'd rather go this route first, and once this is taken care of, go to other solutions. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, there's another thing on my list that I want to chat to you about. I know we've had a few technical issues, so I'm 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 playing with fire here, so I can keep you around for another ten minutes. 
But when it comes to recovery, let's have a little, let's have a little chat around that. And I'd love to touch on the kind of similar what we did with the sleep in terms of there's, there's best practices, but there's actually applying them best practices in the, in the real world. So how, what's, what's your philosophy on recovery as a, as a global term? And then how do you go about implementing them best practices that you might hear about in the research versus what you can actually do day-to-day in a club? Um, well, my philosophy, number one, you know, and I think, I think recovery is a, uh, is a huge, huge factor in performance, you know. Um, to illustrate my, my thought, you know, I've, I kind of always said that, you know, how people talk about overtraining. And, and I kind of always said that there's no such thing as overtraining, even if there is, you know, we all know that. But I always say there's no such thing as overtraining, but there is, a, there is something about uh, under-recovery, you know, that, that tells you that I really believe into uh, the recovery because sometimes it's being uh, overlooked, you know. Um, so what does it mean? First of all, the physical recovery and the mental recovery. I think the second part, is something we don't control as much, but is as important, you know, if not more. Uh, best practice? You look at all the studies out there. You have a staff in a performance department, you know, which is in charge of, you know, um, if, if, if not you, at least them keeping you updated on, on different things going out there, then you make decisions. Just like when we're talking about um, training at game time, you know, uh, uh, later during the week. The protocol that I've been using um, have changed over the years, you know. The uh, the actual equipment also has changed that I've been using. Some I use now, I wasn't using before, and then the opposite. So I can tell you about um, what do we do now, uh, what have I done lately, I should say. Uh, we use, in terms of technology, we have a, a battery of tests that we do the next day. Um, so we use the Omega Wave. Uh, we, we looked at the uh, vertical jump using the opto jump. You know, we look at ground time and see if, you know, what's the variation of performance pre and post game, you know, and this is how we can affect, you know, on top of the wellness questionnaires, you know, this is how we can more or less verify uh, the state of the player. Um, there is a device that has been around for a year or two now that, are, that have really uh, has taken a bigger place into our, our protocol. It's called Kangatech, you know, it's a isometric device so as opposed to do a, uh, a you know a sit and reach for example the next day we would do like a uh, doctor squeezes abductor squeezes you know hip flexion we're measuring like in short five seconds you know max isometric uh, contractions and see if the player is within the range that it should be compared to uh, to pregame that would indicate the recovery so these are for the uh, these are all for the uh, concrete physical and physiological markers that we go by. Uh, in terms of technique, you know, we have a, a battery of hydrotherapy, cryotherapy, whether it's active or passive, uh, the compression boots, you know, and the nutrition, obviously the shakes pre and post, uh, using massages, using inversion. So pretty much what I do, going back to my first point, which is the mental side, they are there is a protocol that exists that they all have to go. So the Omega Wave can get taken, the Opto Jump. When it comes to the actual recovery techniques, I would definitely, because I think the mental side is key, okay, I would definitely try to cater and individualize the, um, the routine for each player. Example, if a player doesn't want to do the, uh, the, the compression boots, then he'd rather be you know, using the cold therapy, it's fine with me, you know, as long as each one of them is going through two or three techniques and the whole spectrum is covered. Um, because I really think that the mental side of things is key, you know, and, and we all know that the recovery after a win is going to be taken care of. And even the markers 
are going to be higher than doing the exact same thing after a loss. So the power of the brain is something that you don't want to you don't want to ignore. You know. So we also have sometimes have you know um, let's not talk about the day after or the day after off because we can talk about it for days. But uh, uh, if we have a double day, you know, I. I I really make sure that there is a, uh, a quiet room, a sleeping room available at the uh, at the training center. You know, um, that's not because for me this is this is controlling the things that you can control, and this is also a part of uh, of recovery. Excellent. So you'd have a chart on the wall, and that you'd you'd break the recovery modalities up, and as long as the guys were able to tick each category, you're not particularly bothered what it is, as long as it's within that category. Okay. Exactly. There's a you know this is what I call a cafeteria style. Yeah. Okay. Pick what you want, but uh, there's no chart on the wall. You know the staff is such that is dispatched in key position, and then you just you just check the uh, just check the presence. And and I'm not a. I like to believe uh, as much as possible. I'm, I like to believe that players are, are responsible. You know, and and I'd rather be a facilitator than a than a. Uh, than a cop. Yes. Okay. Sometimes you have. Sometimes you have to. You know. But I like to reach the point, uh, um, to which, you know, you you, you just pre, you just seen as the uh, facilitator. A facilitator, not a dictator. Uh, yes. Just thought that. Then. I, I would keep that. <laughs> I would keep that. Should, should have said that. I should have kept that for myself. No, that's cool. Yeah. yeah no, that's that's cool. Um, like I say, I know we're. Uh, I've lost you a couple of times, so I'm just conscious that I'm gonna lose you again and lose everything. Um. So, Pierre, thank you very much for your for your time. Anyone that wants to get in touch with you and have a little chat about your time in the galaxy or anything that we've chatted about just here right now or anything you've done in the past where's the best place for people to reach out um you know i got a twitter account you know that's that's an easy way to go about it do you know what it is um uh it's at pierre underscore barrier that's the best one yeah i would think so you know uh you know linkedin is a good one as well and are you doing the um, any traveling or any speaking or what have you got going? I am going. Yes, okay. I uh, in a few weeks from now I'm, I'll be in Singapore for ten days with the Singapore FA uh, running a FIFA school. So this FIFA coaching school that I run are called uh, um, integrated physical training and small sided games. So that's that's it's a way to teach different. Um, Coaches to different federations how to modulate and how to affect training intensity, um, not using any equipment. You know, basically designing the sessions and drills uh, with physical goals in mind, and uh, and being able to do so through different exercises. So superb, and you can implement all them um, jet lag strategies on your way to Singapore as well. I think it's twenty-seven hours. Oh, so uh, would, again, it's 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 uh, it is not easy, uh, but you can make it easier if you're if you're disciplined, you know, and strong. You know, I mean, when I was flying with Japan, the other I was I didn't finish, but uh, um, on the way back, I just woke up at three a.m. I went to the gym at four a.m. I had a workout because it was like 5 a.m. in L.A., you know, 5 p.m. in L.A. And uh, and then I slept in a plane at L.A. time, and then I came back here and, like, I never left. <laughs> so it, it, it's true, you know. So you end up in bizarre situation at times, but you just, just have to force yourself and, uh, and get it done. Well, thank you very much for that. I've kept you probably longer than I, I promised you, but really appreciate you coming on, and thank you very much for your time. And uh, we'll keep in touch, and if you're ever in Europe or U.K., Give me a shout. Yeah, I will be there shortly anyway. For sure. Lovely. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Thanks, Pierre. No worries. Thanks, mate. Oh, okay. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Pierre. So some really interesting thoughts around design high-intensity interval training sessions, whether that be through small-sided games or individual uh, MAS running in, in this scenario. Also some chat around sleep and recovery, which hopefully has provoked some thought for those out there um, who are thinking about these topics. Also, big thanks to the sponsors of this episode today. Got some really cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. So thank you again for your support. If you haven't pressed subscribe, make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and I will chat to you next week.